Well, let's read from God's Word. We turn to the Psalms and the prose version in the middle of our Bibles. We're turning to Psalm 119, and we're reading from verse number 97. Psalm 119, you'll notice in your Bible, divided into different uh, sections, and each section starts with a different letter from the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, It's not something that translators uh, can really reproduce, be very difficult, Uh, but in the section we're going to be reading, uh, every verse starts uh, with the Hebrew letter for M, and be quite a challenge for translators to produce uh, that sort of pattern, but worth just keeping in mind. That's the way the Holy Spirit led the psalmist to pen uh, this the longest of the Psalms. Begin to read at verse number 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, Therefore, I hate every wrong path. If I speak of the law, what thoughts come into your mind? Well, to many people, mention of the law tends to have a strongly negative connotation. We may recognize, yes, some laws are good and necessary. We certainly would not want to live in a lawless society. But to many people, laws are restrictions on their freedom, limitations on what they can do. You only have to mention health and safety regulations and usually you will get a reaction and it tends not to be positive. All these rules, we have to keep things we can't do and so forth. That's often what the law suggests to people. Things it doesn't allow us to do, ways in which it restricts our freedom. The law pens us in and it directs us in ways that other people have decided upon. And that doesn't sit well with a society that values freedom and expressing yourself and being whatever you want to be. And the law comes along And in many people's minds it says you can't and you mustn't and you won't. And it closes us in and restricts us. And law, of course, can seem very cold and abstract. The product of distant, faceless legislators. How many people would use the language of love with regard to the law? Well, there might be a few of course, who earn their living from the law, who are engaged in it uh, day by day. We have some of them in the congregation here. Maybe they would say they love the law. 
though I suspect, at least on some days, they wouldn't say that. But if that is how we think of law, how do we handle the many references that we find in the Bible to God's law? Because these kinds of attitudes, law restricts, law takes away my freedom, law compels me to to live in a certain way, those can carry over into the church when we think of God's law. Is it something that takes away our freedom, that restricts what we can do, that, that pens us in? How do we respond to the many, many references in the Bible to God's law? Is it a cold, abstract set of rules and regulations? Is it something that takes away our freedom, something we wish we were delivered from? And often in the Christian church, you look back in church history, you'll see there have been two extremes with regard to God's law. There have been those we could call legalists, people who say the way to be right with God is keeping all the rules, being a moral person who keeps God's law as best he can. That's how to be right with God. That's how to be saved. That's a legalist. And then on the other side, There are those who say, well, if we're Christians, we've no need of the law at all. It has nothing to do with us. We're finished with it once we're Christians. And they're the the antinomians. There's a, a big word that you can dazzle your friends with, if you like. Legalists who say, the law will save us. Antinomians who say, we don't need the law at all. We're done with it. We don't have to worry ourselves about regulations and rules and and law. The Spirit will lead us. That's, That's all we need. The biblical path really is between those two extremes. And we see that path set out again and again in Psalm 119. Virtually every verse refers to God's word, God's law, God's commandments, and refers to them positively. I want to turn to that section of Psalm 119 that we read earlier, verses 97 to 104. And we're thinking uh, this morning of God's transforming word. God's transforming word. Here is a portion of Scripture that ought to be on the lips of every Christian, and yet which some Christians would find hard to speak, to sing, to really understand as part of how they live, how I love your law. And to some that seems very strange. How is it possible? God's transforming word. Several things stand out in these verses. And the first surely must be delight. Delight. Psalm begins with a vigorous statement. Oh, how I love your law. There's nothing half-hearted 
about the psalmist's attitude. He's not saying, well, your law's all right, and sometimes I would, I would read it. No, how I love your law. It's wholehearted, it's full on. This is how he views the law of God. And he's not saying to us simply, this is how I happen to think about God's law. Maybe you see it differently. That's not his mindset at all. What the psalmist is doing is savoring God's law for what it is. Whether you delight in it or not, whether he delights in it or not, it is a delightful thing. That's what God's law is like. How sweet your words are to my taste, he sings in verse 103. And that is true even if he didn't savor those words on a particular day. Even if God's word to him maybe was hard and difficult That's what God's word is like. It is something that is sweet to his people. How is that possible? How can we truly, wholeheartedly take these words as our own? Oh, how I love your law. Are there not days, perhaps, when we don't love God's law, when we perhaps resent it when we maybe find it a burden, when we would prefer not to listen to it. How can we wholeheartedly say, I love your law? Well, we have the answer in the psalm. All the way through the psalm, all the way through the Psalter, all the way through the Bible, it's clear Uh, that love for God's law, for God's word, flows from love for God himself. The psalmist can sing, Oh, I love your law, because he is a man who loves God, the God who has given that law. It's not simply that he loves commandments or words on a page, but he loves the giver of that law. That's what delights his heart, and so he delights in the law. And without love for God, well, really, love for his law is impossible. If you've no love for God, if you resent him, if you fear him, if you hate him, then, of course, you won't love his law. We view God's law really in the same way we view God himself. And so the very beginning of this uh, part of the psalm isn't just a statement about love for God's law. It's a statement about loving God himself. If we love God, we will love his law. And it's very significant when we look at the Scriptures, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, you see how often loving God is linked with obedience, with willing keeping of his law. The two go together. There's no conflict between them. In the minds of some Christians, there's a 
there's a tension, there's a conflict between loving God and keeping his commandments. The Bible knows nothing of that sort of tension, that sort of conflict. The two go together. Listen to what Jesus says, for example, in John 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It couldn't really be any clearer than that, could it? Love Jesus, keep his commandments. Same lesson in 1 John 5 and verse 3. This is love for God. So how does John define love for God? He doesn't say this is love for God, going to lots of meetings. This is love for God, being a very moral person. This is love for God, carrying a big Bible under your arm. This is love for God. To keep, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Isn't that striking? There is the the definition, the measure of loving God. It's keeping his commands and not finding them burdensome. Loving God and obeying his law go together. They're not in conflict. Now that is not for a moment to suggest that By obeying God's law, somehow or other, we make ourselves right with God. As if we could say, well, if I keep God's commandments well enough, if I keep enough of them, I'll be all right with God. I'll be saved. That's the the legalism we, we talked about at the beginning of this address. Certainly not. Love for God and keeping his commandments are consequences of being saved by grace. They flow from salvation by the grace of God. The biblical way of salvation is always, as Paul states in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves It is the gift of God, not by works. That never changes. We are saved by grace, not by works, not by keeping God's law, not by obedience. That will never save anybody. It's impossible. And it's only once we are saved by grace that the issue of our obedience to God's law comes into the picture. After Paul talks about saved by grace, not by works, then he goes on to say in Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared for us to do. After we're saved by grace, then we obey. Then we do the good works. We keep God's law not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. And if you ever lose sight of that principle, then you're in trouble spiritually. We keep God's law because we have been saved. 
not in order to be saved. Obedience, keeping God's law, flows from salvation by grace. And the words the psalmist uses here for God's law are are all significant. Every word tells us something. How does he describe God's word? Well, he calls it God's law. Verse 97, how I love your law. And we need to understand that in Hebrew, the word that's used for law very often, and here in particular, is really a word that would be used for a father's counsel to his children. It's not a set of abstract statutes. We think of law, you could take it down, open the book, and there, in legal language, you probably can't understand there's a set of regulations. That's not what the word signifies here. The word Torah, often used of the the Hebrew Old Testament. And it's a father talking to his children. Even the book of Proverbs, my son Do this, do that, beware of something else. God's law is our Father's counsel, our loving Father's direction to us, how to live, to honor him, and to delight him, and to find true happiness, the law. The statutes, verse 99, or if you're using the ESV, it's the testimonies. God's witness to himself where he tells us what he is like and what he expects of us. He doesn't leave us to wonder, if I'm one of God's people, how should I live? He tells us in his statutes, his testimonies. We have his precepts in verse 100. This psalm must really test translators to find enough English words to to translate uh, the original. The precepts, verse 100, detailed applications of God's truth to the realities of life. And you see this in so much of the Old Testament law, don't you? It's not floating along in some abstract world. It's rooted in everyday living tells you how to conduct yourself in your family, in your business, in the relationships of life. It's rooted, it's earthed in the details of life, the precepts of God. Again, God doesn't simply give us some general rules and tell us to get on with figuring out how we apply them. He gives us direction in the application. There's this word, verse 101. And that emphasizes that God has spoken these things. What we have written down is God's word. The phrase Paul uses all scripture is God-breathed. If that's the case, if this is God's word, doesn't that tell us something profound about what our attitude to it should be? This isn't merely human words. Take them or leave them. This is God's word. And if we love the Lord, we will listen to his word. Law, statutes, precepts, his word. 
his laws. That's the last one in verse 102. I have not departed from your laws. And that has the sense of authoritative direction, decision, closer perhaps to what we would think of as as laws today. But it's God's law. His word, his laws. And all of these terms remind us of the source of God's law. It comes from God himself. God who addresses his people as our father. A father who loves us and has saved us. And that's why the psalmist can say in verse 97, I meditate on it all day long. Why? Because it's his father's word. We could really say he's hanging on every word that his father speaks. If we love parents, we give attention to their words, we're eager to hear what they say to us, what they want of us. How much more is that the case for our Father in heaven? We hang on his every word. I meditate. Serious, extended study and consideration. Chewing it over. I meditate on your law. Not simply, I read a couple of verses before I dash out in the morning. I skim a passage, maybe last thing at night, just before I fall asleep. I meditate. It takes time. It takes thought. It it doesn't just happen. That's true for ministers of the gospel. The same as it does for any Christian. You need to give deliberate attention to meditate on the word of God. What's it saying to me? What's this passage saying? What's God requiring of me? But if we love him, there's delight in his law. That surely is the, the, the note that we hear above all in this passage. And all through Psalm 119, delight. Oh, how I love your law. Does that awaken an echo in your heart? Can you say, yes, yes, I love God's law, not as fervently as I should But yet, yes, it matters to me above any other word. And I love to read it. I love to hear it. I love to think about it. That's a mark of grace. If that's your response. There's delight. But then the second thing we see in this portion is holiness. Holiness. Because all through Psalm 119, we see that God's word is given in order to have a transforming effect on the Lord's people. That's why we're thinking of God's transforming word. It's not simply given for abstract theoretical study. It's possible, you know, to study God's word that way. And it's a danger for those who professionally teach God's word, that you come to every passage in an academic way. 
And you get the commentaries and you get the, the language guides and so forth. And you study it and you work it out and you think of how it applies to other people. And yet not yourself. And God's word isn't given to us to be treated in that way. I meditate on it. And that is not a purely intellectual exercise. It's not just something that goes on in your head. And it is a dangerous thing if we slip into treating God's word in that way. Because that leads often to pride. How much I know. How much more I know than other Christians. And surely that's in Paul's mind when he writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up. It does if you come to the word of God purely as an intellectual exercise and to store up information in your head and even to be able to win arguments and preach sermons. And so in James 1, we've been looking at James in recent months and morning worship. The command is, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And you see that truth here in Psalm 119. The impact of God's law on the psalmist's life. Verse 101, I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. He's taken deliberate action in order to walk the path of obedience. He's committed to it. It's obedience that doesn't just happen. He's committed to it. Of course, all our obedience to God's law has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We don't obey God without the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. But it's our obedience. The Holy Spirit doesn't obey for us. We must obey. We must commit ourselves as his people, as his adopted children, to obedience. The call of 1 Peter 1.12, for example, be holy because I am holy, God says. There's a command to us He doesn't simply say, because I'm holy, you will be holy. He commands his people, be holy. There's action to be taken. What is holiness? Well, it is surely an increasing conformity to the character of God. The character of God that's expressed in his law. How do you know what God is like? He tells us. In his law. This is the kind of God he is. And therefore, this is the kind of character that's to be seen in his people. And the psalmist can write in verse 102, I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. Again, you see that sense of a personal relationship with the Lord. He's not some distant legislator who doesn't know anything about us or care anything about us. He's our Father. And he teaches us. And his Spirit applies the Word to us. This is personal. And he molds us to be like himself. 
he molds us in particular to be like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect lawkeeper. As God works graciously in us, we find a growing attraction to what is true and what is good and a growing revulsion to what is false and what is wicked. That's part of growing as a Christian, that more and more we are drawn to God's laws. We're drawn to God himself. And less and less do we find any attraction in ungodliness. And we see how we are progressing as Christians by our attitude to God's law. Do we find it more delightful? Do we find more joy in obeying it than we used to? We should if we are growing in the Lord. There's a severe warning if we don't find more delight, if we find decreasing delight in God's word, then the alarm bell should be ringing because our relationship with the Lord isn't healthy. There must be holiness if we are those who love God's law. Yes, there is delight. Our hearts are lifted when we come to God's law and to God's word in all its parts. There must be holiness, obedience. Are we growing in holiness, in likeness to the God who speaks to us in his law? Delight, holiness, and finally, wisdom. Wisdom. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. The psalmist writes in verse 98. Here's the ongoing impact of God's word and how he thinks on his whole life, because God's word touches every part of our lives. Nothing is left out. Nothing is beyond God's concern in our living. And so we need to think of wisdom, but which Psalm 119 has so much to say. Wisdom, because how we think shapes how we live. It shapes everything about us. Maybe you read those words and there's the sense perhaps the psalmist, does he not sound a bit arrogant in what he says here? I have more insight than all my teachers. Well, we've met people like that, haven't we? All who teach have come across those who think they know a lot more than their teachers the people that you couldn't teach anything to. Is that what the psalmist is like? Is he the kind of arrogant young pup that you couldn't tell anything to? I know more than all of you. I know more than the elders. What a clever boy I am. Is that what he's saying? Of course he isn't. Now he's in a society where those who are older are deferred to as wise. We're in the opposite society. Those who are older are put in the shelf and disregarded as having nothing to contribute. 
But in biblical culture, those who were older were expected to be wiser, deferred to, respected, listened to. And it might sound at first that to hear the words of a young man who, who doesn't understand how little he knows, who's an inflated sense of his own importance. But that isn't what he's saying. The focus isn't on himself. He's not saying how clever I am, how much I know. I am the font of all knowledge. No. Rather, his thought is for the Lord, for the Lord who has given the commandments, the Lord who is his teacher. Why does he have more insight than others? Verse 99, I meditate on your statutes. Why does he have more understanding? It's because I obey your precepts. The wisdom isn't his own. He's not saying how clever I am. He's building on God. The wisdom comes from outside himself. He's actually a humble man. Because he's not glorifying himself and he's not attracting attention to himself. The focus is on the Lord. It's God's statutes. It's God's precepts. That's the source of wisdom. Of course, as we've often said, wisdom in the Bible is a very practical thing. It's not purely building up information as if He's saying, I can recite large parts of God's law. I can remember them. They're in his heart. They're in his life. They're shaping him. Wisdom is practical. He excels his teachers because he sees in them men who are not building on God's revelation. Men who are not holding on to the truth and living it out. Like all of the unsaved that Paul describes in Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. True wisdom comes from God's precepts. And the more God's word filters into our hearts and lives, the wiser people will be. Oh, we may not be very educated, We may not be very intellectually able. That's not what's significant. We'll be wise people. Wise in God's eyes because we are obeying his law. We are being shaped by his commandments. We are reflecting his likeness. And that is true wisdom. Can there be any greater condemnation that when God says, as he said to the rich fool in the parable, you fool, may we not be fools in God's eyes, living by our own supposed wisdom, our own intellectual abilities, whatever it is that guides our thinking. May it be God's law, our Father's, Guidance, counsel, direction. 
that will lead us in paths of righteousness. It will lead us to hate every wrong path as the, the section ends. May we know the Spirit indwelling us, enabling us to delight in God's law. May we be able to say wholeheartedly, Oh, how I love your law. May there be holiness, reflecting God's holiness as we obey his law. May we have wisdom in a world that offers us foolishness. All kinds of foolishness, but foolishness nonetheless. Here's wisdom. May God make us wise people for his glory.